Last week we covered steps one and two. Reagan did a phenomenal job uh, in here last week. I was in traditional worship in my big boy clothes, uh, so now you can see I'm comfortably back here in Thrive. And, uh, and, uh, and Carrie Lynn preached a great message in Crosswalk. If you weren't able to be here last week or you didn't join us online, hello to those of you who are online. Um, I would encourage you to go on the website and, and, and watch that sermon because it really lays the, the foundational groundwork for this series that we're going to be in for seven weeks. And, um, and this week we're going to look at just one step. Most weeks we'll be looking at two at a time. Uh, and this week, though, it's just one step because it's a big one. This is step three. And step three says this. It says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. We made a decision to turn over our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And so one thing we touched on last week is maybe you're looking at this and this is your first Sunday in here. Maybe this is your first Sunday at Lover's Lane. Um, and you might be saying, I am not an addict, I'm not an alcoholic, what does this have to do with me? Uh, one of the things we talked about last week is that all of us are in need of recovery, all of us have hurts, habits, and hang-ups, all of us have brokenness that we need help recovering from, and so that's what we're talking about. And this week is really that decision to hand over our lives into the care of God. Um, and to help us with that conversation, we're going to be turning to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Last week we were also in Romans in an earlier chapter, chapter 7. This week we're in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And yes, it's just two verses today. You know, normally we read a bit more than that here in Thrive, but there are some parts of Scripture that are just so dense, so rich, so uh, just deep that uh, doing a verse or, a t- or two at a time is more than enough. I mean, there have been volumes written about the two verses that we're about to read together. And so uh, we turn now to hear some, for some of us, familiar words of Paul, for some of us maybe hearing for the first time. This is Paul speaking to a church in Rome, and just to sort of orient you to what he's been saying up to this point, he's essentially been laying out this, this understanding that everybody is sinful, Everybody is broken. Everybody is in need of of saving, uh, both Jew and Gentile alike. And then he begins to, you know, sort of reveal this this beautiful, merciful work of God in the in the sort of center chapters of his letter. And now he's talking more about what it means for us to live uh, in this grace of God that he's been preaching about. And so he begins, and he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or other translations, which is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. Amen. So. I'm going to do this thing today that we do from time to time where uh, we're just going to walk through the scripture bit by bit, and there's a few words and key phrases that I want us to take a special look at, and, uh, and so we're just going to kind of stop and smell the roses along the way. It's a good thing we got this beautiful floral arrangement up here, right? And, uh, and so just go with me today. We're going to go on a journey through these words of Paul because these, these little words that you could read through so quickly in two verses, they are packed with meaning, and, and, and I don't want us to miss it. 
So let's start with when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, and he says, by the mercies of God. And that's sort of a churchy, churchy kind of phrase that we could skip over really quickly. But I want us to hone in on that because I think that is a really meaningful phrase that he's using. Because what Paul is essentially saying is, I'm about to tell you how your life can be lived differently, how we should respond to God. But he's uplifting a very specific character of God to help center us in that response. And he says, by the mercies of God. He doesn't just say in response to God. He doesn't just say out of responsibility to God or, or out of service to God. He says, by the mercies of God. I want to talk about that for a second. One of the things that, that grieves me as a pastor, especially a pastor in America today, where um, there's a whole bunch of bad theology that exists out, out in the world. Uh, none of it's here, by the way. This is all good theology. No. Um, <laughs> that's why I don't go back and watch my old sermons. Right? I go, oh, why did I say that? No. Um, there's, there's a lot of really bad theology out in the world, and, and there's a lot of people that walk through life and, and their image of God that they've usually been given by somebody else. You, most people don't just sort of arrive at this on their own. They, they get handed this, this understanding of who God is, and it's, and it's poisonous, and they think that God is like a judge and executioner. And just this like angry old man in the sky that's just like waiting for you to step out of line so he can zap you with a thunderbolt, Right? Have you ever had this image of God before in your head? I have before. It's not fun. If that's your image of God, if your image of God is that God is this judge and executioner and, and there's just this wrath and there's vengeance and he's just like, he's just waiting and he can't wait so he can just zap you and send a pillar of fire down, right? Um, the best you can ever do with a God like that is to escape God's anger. And that's just not a compelling relationship. You know, there's a lot of folks that don't go to church because that's the image of God they were given. And I'll tell you what, if that's the image of God that I had, I wouldn't be standing here right now. That's not a compelling relationship. That's a relationship that's built upon fear. That's a relationship built upon judgment. And judgment produces shame and guilt. God's always watching me and always judging me, and he thinks so little of me, and he can't wait to just zap me when I step out of line. I mean, that is not a compelling relationship. A relationship built upon fear and built upon shame and built upon guilt, it's an abusive relationship. That's not a healthy relationship. That's not a compelling relationship. That's an abusive relationship. We've got to have a better understanding of, of who God is. And, and Paul uplifts this, this word of character about God that, that, trust me, he's been in relationship with a judgmental and, 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 and vengeful God. That was Paul earlier in his life when he lived by judgment. He lived by, by uh, vengeance. He lived by anger and wrath. And he made his whole life about zapping people who stepped out of lines. He was a persecutor of early Christians. Paul understood the dangers of trying to be in relationship with a God that looks like that. And so he says, we need to be in relationship. We need to live our lives out of, born out of the mercies of God. The 12 steps are really interesting in the fact that they, they, they are explicitly not Christian-based. You know, as you read the 12 steps, you'll notice it's very open-ended. Even in step three, it says, God, as we understood him, or God, as we understood God. 
Um, and, and part of that reason is because the 12 steps wanted to swing their doors wide open so that people of all faith traditions or no faith tradition um, who just wanted to be spiritual but sort of agnostic about it um, could still find recovery. That was their mission, to bring recovery to as many people as possible. They didn't want that to be a tripping stone for people. And, and, and at the same time, here in the Christian church, at Lover's Lane, I know we got agnostics in the room this morning because I've had breakfast with you, and you've told me you are, and that's great. You know, I love those kind of questions. If you haven't told me you're an agnostic yet, please, let's have breakfast. Let's talk about it. I'm a nerd. Let's talk through those stuff. Hit me with your hard questions. But I don't care what you believe about God or don't believe about God. I hope that we can have some, some core principle understandings about God. Whether you're able to name God as Jesus Christ or not, I hope that one of the core characteristics we could agree about is that God's mercy is abundant. Because when we find ourselves in a relationship with a merciful God, a God who's defined by his acts of mercy, now that's a compelling vision of relationship. Let me explain why. Why I know this to be true. When I was in the fourth grade, I told a really big lie uh, to my mom. My mom is watching online right now. Sorry about that, mom. Um, told a really big lie in the fourth grade for a fourth grader, right? And um, when I knew that the jig was up, that I'd been found out, that, that um, it turns out I'm not as smart as I think I am, right? No fourth grader is as smart as they think they are. Um, there's that moment when, like that first time you really mess up and, and, you're, and you know your parents found out, there's that moment of like intense shame and guilt that just washes over you. Do you remember that feeling the first time? Oh my gosh, I do. And, and, and I felt like this big because in that moment I was scared and I was ashamed and I felt guilty and I thought, oh my gosh, my mom is going to kill me. Oh my gosh, I've, I've killed our relationship. She's never going to trust me again. She's never going to love me again. I'm just, I, I, I mean, I'm just this big and I'm sitting in my room feeling like it is the end of the world because you know when anything goes bad when you're a fourth grader, it's the end of the world. And then my door opens. And trust me, my mom was mad. She'd given me the talking to. You know, she was mad. She was disappointed. She was frustrated. She, and, but she came in. She said, Scott, I, I'm, I'm frustrated, and I am disappointed, and I'm, I'm a little bit mad, too. Um, but then she opened her arms wide, and she gave me a big hug, and she drew me in close, and she said, but I love you, and nothing is ever going to change that, and it's going to be okay, and we're going to get through this together. And parents, if you ever wonder how important it is to display grace and mercy to your children at really critical moments like that, let me tell you just how important it is. Flash forward about 12 years, and I'm in college. I told this uh, version of the story last week in traditional worship, but I know that most of us weren't there. So 12 years later, I'm in college I'm at UNT. I'm in the honors dorm. I'm achieving, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I was really pumped to be in the honors dorm because you get your own thermostat in the honors dorm. You can set your own Temperature, which that is like, you're living like a king in college. You get to set your own temperature with your own thermostat. And you had a private dorm room, which was really cool. You didn't have to be in a dorm room with, you know, uh, some rando that you got paired with, right? And, um, and so I'm in, my, I'm in my dorm room, and I wake up uh, one Monday morning, and for the life of me, I cannot get the energy or willpower to get out of bed. It was weird. I hadn't experienced something like that before, and... I didn't get out of bed, and Tuesday I didn't get out of bed, and Wednesday I didn't get out of bed, and I didn't go to class, I didn't do my laundry, I didn't take a shower, I, I found whatever scraps of food were lying around my dorm room, stale frosted flakes, leftover potato chips, I didn't leave my room for a week, no friends, no parties, no classes, no nothing, 
I was terrified because I didn't know what was wrong with me. It was weird. And at the time, I didn't know that what I was going through was my first really bad episode of major depressive disorder, but I just thought that I was a failure, that I was a loser, that I was a waste of space. I felt this big again. But on Friday, I had enough courage to make a phone call, and it was the easiest choice I've ever made because, in a way, I went back to that fourth grade boy who had received a hug and a word of grace and mercy from his mom, and so I called my mom. I said, Mom, I don't know what's going on, but something's wrong. I haven't left my room for a week. I haven't been to classes. I haven't done anything. You know, my mom had, had reason to be frustrated, I'm sure. I mean, she was paying good money to send me those classes. She was paying good money for me to stay in that private dorm room in the honors college, and I'm sure she was disappointed or frustrated, but none of that came across the phone. What she said was, Scott, I'm so sorry. I love you. We're going to get through this together. It's going to be okay. Mercy is a compelling reason to be in relationship with someone. When you know that you're going to be met with mercy, then you turn to that person in your times of need. Because when we're in those kinds of places, anyone who's been rock bottom, anybody who's been in a position like that, who's been in the dorm room and hasn't left it for a week, who's been in that kind of a dark, hopeless place, trust me, you've judged yourself plenty. You know what that feels like. What you need is you need someone to tell you it's going to be okay. That you're going to get through this together, that you're not alone, that, that mercy really is possible. And so the first thing I want to say this morning, and if you hear nothing else, at least hear this and then tune out. But I want to say this, God's mercy is always greater than our mistakes. Paul says this. He says, everything we do from here on out, I'm telling you, we do this because of the mercy of God. God's mercies are always greater than our mistakes. And you might say, Pastor Scott, that's fine for you, you know, but you don't understand what I've done. No, I don't, but God does, and God's mercy wins out. I don't care who you think you are, what you think you've done, God's mercy is always greater than our mistakes. Can I get an amen on that? Let's keep moving. So then Paul says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or true worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your true worship. You know, there's this interesting connection that Jesus makes in his teachings that we find in the Gospels, that Jesus makes this connection between our faith and our actions, what we believe and what we do. And, and in the Christian faith, we're very clear that we are saved not by what we do, but, but by our faith, by our faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what saves us. That's, the, that's our long-standing Christian tradition and teaching going all the way back to the Bible, right? Paul says we are saved by faith, not by works, right? Um, and that's, and that's got to be true because none of us need to feel like we've got to work our way into heaven. That's exhausting. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. Heaven is perfect. Are you perfect? Then you're never going to be good enough. That's why faith is so critical. And yet, Jesus says, and yet, there's this connection between our faith and our works. And it's that our works, our actions, can be a a window into the state of our faith. Jesus says things like, you can tell a tree by its fruit. right? If I say that I believe something, but then I live like I don't, then do I really believe it? 
If I say I'm an apple tree, but I produce oranges, am I really an apple tree? Right? And so we're not saved by our actions, but our actions can reveal the state of our faith. Y'all with me? There's a book written by a, a, a celebrated Catholic teacher named Father Richard Rohr, and, and he's an incredible author, um, kind of a mystic, and he's really into spiritual practices. And he wrote a book about the 12 steps from a theological perspective. It's called Breathing Underwater. Reagan quoted it last week. I would commend it to you, to your reading. Again, If you know, go ahead and hop on Amazon, order it now. Um, and he says something in there that, that, that lines right up with what we're talking about today. He says, how you do life is your real and final truth, not what ideas you believe. How you do life is your real and final truth, not what ideas you believe. He's saying the same thing that Jesus is, that it's our actions do matter. The way that we live our life is not meaningless. It's not like just because we think about Jesus enough, all of a sudden then, you know, well, everything's great then. No, your actions still really matter. Our actions are meaningful in this world, and they can give us a window into our faith. And so Paul says our response to God is to become this living sacrifice. Present your bodies, the real sense of who you are, your, your physical being. Present that as a living sacrifice. He says that's going to be your true worship. See, when, when what we say we believe and our actions don't connect, not only is that harmful for us, but it's also harmful for the witness of the worshiping community. You know, it's one thing to gather together and to sing some songs. It's another thing to get outside these walls and live like we actually believe these things. You know, when I was in college, and like many of you, I was questioning my faith a lot, that's a perfect season to question a lot of things, my faith being one of them. And, uh, and I was going to this campus ministry, and it was, it was all right. You know, the music was really good, and the preacher was great until like the sixth or seventh week of the semester, and he told us all our friends who didn't go to that church are going to hell. And I was like, peace out. Um, this is weird. So... Um, but I would be in worship, and, and it was real. I mean, it was really, the, I will say, the band was kicking. They, it was a good band, good band. And, uh, and people were, you know, raising their hands. They were singing. I'd see people that were in my classes or that I knew from the dorm. They were raising their hands. They're singing, oh, yes, oh, I mean, I mean, they were really digging it. And then, you know, we'd get out of that place, and, you know, these, a lot of these people were jerks. They were jerks to me in class. They were jerks in the dorm. It just didn't connect, and so, you know, I walked out of that, and I was just thinking, man, do I want to be a part of something where, like, we say we believe one thing, but we do something totally different? That's hard, and I think that's another big reason why folks don't find their way into church, because they go, you know, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. And again, it's not that the doing it is what gets us into heaven. It's not that being good enough is what gets us into heaven. But it does create a witness. What we do is a form of worship. Paul says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship. In just a moment, we're going to have communion. And as part of our liturgy in the traditional services, and sometimes here in Thrive too, we'll say something like, you know, God, allow us to be a holy and living sacrifice. And what that means is that when we come to the table, we receive this bread and this juice, which we call means of grace. It's like, it's like receiving the grace of God in a tangible form at the table. But when we ask God to make us a holy and living sacrifice, that's like saying, God, make me the bread and juice and send me out from the table. Let me be an extension of the table out in the world around me. Because it's not good enough for us to just have this table here and say, well, anybody who wants it, come and get it, you know. Because look around, there's a lot of folks who ain't here. There's a lot of folks who are at Starbucks or 
at home or watching some pregame show or something. Fastest growing faith in America is not Baptists or Methodists or Catholics or any, it's agnostics. We have to be a living sacrifice. This table is only going to get longer if we extend it. So Paul says it's not enough to just go to church. It's not enough to just go to temple, sing your songs, do the right things, you know, do all this, and then walk out and pretend like none of it meant anything. That's not worship. Living your life like you believe it, that's worship. I'd put it this way. Worship is singing the songs like you meant it on Sunday morning, then acting like you mean it on Sunday afternoon. Worship is singing the songs like you mean it on Sunday morning and acting like you meant it on Sunday afternoon. If we leave this place and nothing about our lives is any different, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Because that means that we're getting a window into our faith and maybe we don't have the faith that we thought we did. Lastly, Paul says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And, and this is a scripture that I have you know, read since I was a kid. And, and every time I come back to it, it brings me back to a really important question that I think is especially important considering the topic that we're in this series. And that question is this, is Christ really the strongest influence on my life? Is Christ really the strongest influence on my life? Because what Paul is, is getting at here is he's saying the patterns of this world, the way that people just are, the way that things just kind of work themselves out by the patterns of this world will conform us if we do nothing about it. And the patterns of this world are not always going to lead us to health and happiness and holiness. The patterns of this world will work to conform us, but not in the things that necessarily are good for us or our souls or good for the kingdom of God, for that matter. And if we passively accept the influences of our surrounding culture, then one day we will wake up and we will have a hard time naming how anything in our life is different because of a relationship with Jesus. And my friends, that, that, that's, that's difficult. If we take an inventory of our lives, if I take an inventory of my life and I say, what actually do I do differently? How am I different? How have I been transformed because of my relationship with Jesus? And if I can't name those kinds of things, it is time for me to get back to the basics. It's time for me to get back to saying, okay, Jesus, I, I thought I had sacrificed myself to you, but I guess I was wrong because I can't see it. The patterns of this world are strong, though. Make no mistake, the patterns of this world are strong. Uh, Father Richard Warren, in another part of his book, he says this. It's a little bit of a longer quote, so stay with me. He says, all societies are addicted to themselves and create deep codependency on them. They are shared and agreed upon addictions in every culture and every institution. These are often the hardest to heal because they do not look like addictions because we have all agreed to be compulsive about the same things and blind to the same problems. I'm telling you, this guy's good. Buy this book. The gospel exposes those lies in every culture. Now, here, that, did you hear what he just said there? The gospel exposes those lies in every culture. That's the power of the gospel. It is universal in calling everybody out. The American addiction to oil, war, and empire. The church's addiction to its own absolute exceptionalism. The poor person's addiction to powerlessness and victimhood. The white person's addiction to superiority. The wealthy person's addiction to entitlement. Wow. Are y'all slinking down in your chairs yet? <laughs> like, oh man, 
Father Richard Rohr is not pulling any punches. These are agreed upon addictions. These are the addictions that we all have this silent agreement that says none of us are going to call each other out for this, right? The pattern of the world. This is just the way things are, right? This is all good, right? Did any of that sound good to you? Addiction to oil and war and empire, addiction to absolute exceptionalism, addiction to powerlessness and victimhood, addiction to superiority, addiction to entitlement. Any of that sound great to you? Not to me. Do you think those patterns of the world are leading anybody to health or happiness or holiness? I don't think so. Here's the deal. If we're going to work step three, and anyone who's in the 12 steps will tell you, you got to work them. If we're going to work step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. If we're going to work that, notice it didn't say we made a decision to turn a little bit of our will in our lives. We made a decision to turn over the easy parts of our will in our lives. We made a decision to turn over the parts I'm willing to turn over of my will in my lives. No, 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 no. We made a decision to turn turn over our will and our lives to the care of God as we understood him. We're going to come to an altar table in just a moment. We're going to come to receive some bread and some juice that is the grace of God for us expressed today. But we're also going to come laying ourselves on this altar table in the same way that Christ did. We're going to come laying not just a little bit of ourselves, but all of ourselves. And so the question I want us to ask this morning is, what am I keeping off the altar table We're going to talk more about getting into what specific sins we're struggling with in the next couple of weeks. Trust me, it's been all sunshine and rainbows up to this point. We're about to get into the tough stuff. Folks in the room who've ever worked the 12 steps, you're like, oh, y'all get ready. It's about to get tough, right? Today, that's that's the next couple of weeks. Today, I want us to, to leave this message with this question ringing in our ears. What am I keeping off the altar table What am I withholding? What am I holding back? What am I saying? God, I want you to change everything about me, but I don't want you to touch this. I don't want you to touch my ego. I need my ego. I don't want you to touch my money. I I need my money. I I, I don't want you to touch my my successes. I I, got to climb that ladder. I don't want you to touch this. I don't want you to touch that. I don't want you to touch my addictions. I don't want you to touch... My dependency on these things. What are you holding back from the altar? What is it that you can walk up this Sunday and finally release and say, you know what, God, I've held on to this for entirely too long and I'm ready to turn it over to you because I'm realizing that the patterns of this world were never going to care for me as much as you will. The patterns of this world are always going to hold me in contempt and judgment. I'm going to feel shame and guilt every day of my life until I finally turn this over to you and I receive the mercy that you are waiting to rain down upon me if I'll only release it from my hands. And here's the cool thing, guys. When you release it from your hands, your hands are ready to receive the grace of God. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we can empty ourselves in this altar table so that we can receive the grace and the mercy of a God who is ready to hold us in a hug, whisper in our ear that it's going to be okay that we're going to get through this together. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day. We give you thanks that your character is defined by mercy. That you are not the 
judgmental executioner that some would lead us to believe that you are a loving parent who's waiting with open arms, ready to receive, ready to whisper in our ears, it's gonna be okay. We are going to get through this together. I am so sorry. God, whatever it is we're holding back this morning, whatever it is that we walked in here clutching tight, whether it was an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to substances, an addiction to pornography, an addiction to anything. God, whether it was an addiction to ourselves, our ego, our finances, our status, our success, our career, whatever it is, God, that we are clinging to so tightly, give us the grace to release them, to lay them, to pour them out on your altar because your altar can receive them. Your table is big enough. God, remind us that you will never define us by our worst mistakes. Your mercies are so much greater that you define us as a child of God. Full stop. God, we give you thanks that we don't walk alone. We give you thanks for this Christian community. And let us be a living sacrifice who receives the grace of God here in worship but continues our worship outside these walls so that others might find recovery through a relationship with you. All of this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who poured out his love so that mercy could abound. It's in his name we pray and we say, amen.